Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to ask a pharmacist about getting naloxone for their first aid kits at home or work. No prescription is needed. Naloxone can rapidly reverse an opioid overdose and restore breathing. Opioidresponse.info. We are coming to the end of yet another week on Political Rewind. It is Friday, August 13th, Friday the 13th. But don't worry, you're in good hands here on Political Rewind this morning. No reason to let your superstitions uh, get the best of you. We have a huge story that we're going to spend a good amount of time unpacking on the show today, and we have just the right people to talk with about it. Uh, The census data, the very specific data for specific uh, cities, counties, uh, townships across the United States, across Georgia, has now been released, and it tells us that there are dramatic changes underway in the population of the state of Georgia that will inevitably lead to dramatic shifts in our politics here as well. We'll talk about that with our panel. It's Friday, which means Patricia Murphy, AJC political reporter and columnist, is with us. You read Patricia's column on Wednesdays and Sundays in the newspaper, and she oversees the uh, political blog at AJC.com, including The Jolt, which is a great summary of uh, quick hits and what's happening in political news uh, during each day. Patricia, just as the news was coming on a little few minutes ago, I was looking to see if you've posted your Sunday column yet, and I, I couldn't see it. Is, it. is it up? or And if not, what are you writing about for Sunday? Uh, yes, it's up. <clears throat> and I'm uh, writing about the move to create a new city out of Buckhead and the transplanted mm. New Yorker who is uh, really uh, the face of that effort now. He's very... Uh, very high profile, uh, a real character. And, and so I wrote about him and, and then the, F, the parts that are pushing it and, and what will also make it hard. So it's all in there in my Sunday column. Okay, great. Uh, people can find that online at AJC.com right now. Um, we're also joined today uh, by Michael Thurman, CEO of DeKalb County, a former Democratic state legislator from Athens, his hometown, served as state labor commissioner, DeKalb County school superintendent. Uh, Michael Thurman has been in many positions of public service. And Mike, this is a great day to have you, given that we're going to unpack the census data. Good morning, Bill, and thank you for the invitation again, and I'm looking forward to the conversation. Um, We're going to talk about it also with Sam Olins, the former attorney general of the state of Georgia, before that uh, chair of the Cobb County Commission, now a partner with Denton's, the world's largest law firm. How are you, Sam? Doing great, Bill. Pleasure to be with you today. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for that. All right. Let's um, start looking at the figures. As I said, there's a lot to unpack. And Patricia... I think a good way to start it is let me read just a couple of graphs from the AJC's reporting on the census data from Georgia. Here's what it says. Georgia grew substantially more diverse over the last 10 years as its black, Hispanic, and Asian populations surged and as its number of white residents dropped slightly, according to the new census data. Statewide, the number of black Georgians increased by 13%, while the white population dropped by 1%. Asian population jumped 53%. The Hispanic population increased 32%. What's really interesting, Patricia, is that we're moving toward being a majority-minority state much more quickly than people realized as of this census. uh, The white majority is just a smidge over 50%, right? Yes, that's exactly right. I think that uh, so far we have been um, accustomed to seeing Atlanta be a majority-minority city really surrounded by um, a number of very white communities in a relatively white state with some pockets of um, Black and minority voters uh, sprinkled throughout some of the larger metro areas around the state. And this shows us in just really stark terms how much that has changed, that Georgia itself is on the verge of being um, majority minority. Um, The city itself is uh, not majority minority anymore by just a small small fraction. Um, And the real change that's driving this 
is in uh, the suburbs and exurbs, um, Johns Creek, Decula, Loganville, Snellville. Um, those are um, increasingly diverse, and those are majority-minority in a way that um, we have never seen in Georgia's history. So it's going to have huge implications, obviously, politically, uh, but then the census numbers are used for everything from building roads and bridges to funding schools to all sorts of um, funding mechanisms. And um, I know the rest of your panel can give a really great insight on where all this data is going to go and how it's used. Yeah, that's going to be a, a, an interesting thing to hear from all of you in terms of how this is going to drive the reapportionment session and uh, the way people uh, pitch their messaging for the 2022 elections. Uh, Mike Thurman, it's fascinating. Uh, Patricia already read some of the communities where that are now majority-minority. Uh, Johns Creek. I always think of Johns Creek as sort of this, um, and maybe I've had it wrong, this sort of wealthy uh, white outpost in uh, in outlying metro Atlanta. Uh, Buford as well. I, I get that. It's, you know, spillover from, I think, Gwinnett. Um, but Carrollton, Noonan, Snellville, all of these now majority-minority counties, uh, 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 cities. What does that tell you, Mike? It tells us that uh, through natural increase as well as migration from other parts of the uh, nation and around the world, that the Atlanta metropolitan area, because of economic opportunity, cost of living, uh, is a magnet uh, for people who are coming here and establishing homes and businesses and careers. So the key question, though, and I'll let Sam and Patricia, can, and we can all be a talk about it, is does this in your mind or any person's mind, if you're a leader, is this a problem or does it present an opportunity uh, for our state? And, and, and I think that uh, perception or perspective will shape the politics and well as the future of our community. Do we see this evolution as a problem or something to be feared or is it an evolution that presents a unique opportunity uh, for the state of Georgia and Metro Atlanta in particular? Great question. Sam, you want to weigh in on all of this? So, you know, for years, uh, the Silicon Valley, as you looked at Atlanta for, uh, for growth, because they have no diversity at their home base, and the city of Atlanta forever was known as a mecca for uh, minority business and uh, business creation, entrepreneurism. I think what we're really seeing here is a day where you no longer limit it to the city of Atlanta and you say that that same opportunity is more uh, and more available throughout our state. Um, clearly, I view that as a great opportunity for our state. Uh, it's unfortunate that we're in such a hyper-partisan time frame, uh, but that is the case throughout the country rather than just our state. But, uh, but I uh, view this as a big, big positive for our state. Um, let me g give out some more data and then uh, uh, ask all of you to comment on it. Patricia, here's an interesting uh, piece of information about all this. The 29 counties included in the Atlanta Metropolitan Statistical Area, which is a pretty broad uh, area of North Georgia, in 2010, those, uh, that area was 51% white. Now, it's less than 44% white. That's almost 6.1 million people live in those 29 counties. That means that the territory now constitutes 57% of Georgia's total population, Patricia, and it is now uh, dr dramatically more uh, a majority-minority area than it is a white area. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think it's the type of trend that will continue to build on itself um, when communities are now known as being majority minority um, and are attracting minority families for the schools, for uh, the lower cost housing, um, and are a diverse community that is successful. I think that will continue to accelerate that trend. Um, and it is so interesting to me because it is coming at um, uh, to a certain extent, the cost of other areas in the state that are growing, but not growing as quickly 
but Atlanta has just become such a magnet for um, corporations. When we see all of these announcements from the governor's office, 500 jobs, a thousand jobs, you know, that is, that those are also um, families that are moving to the state. Um, and certainly I will be so interested to see what the pandemic does to Georgia as well, because um, you can't buy a house anywhere in this whole state. Um, I think that people are moving in also anecdotally from New York and California um, and continuing to uh, really flood into Georgia in a way that I think is going to be really durable and meaningful as well. And when I say Georgia, a lot of that is certainly those exurban counties in metro Atlanta. Sam Olins, when you ran for attorney general, I know that you paid a lot of attention to traveling across South Georgia, recognizing how important it was for you as a Republican candidate to appeal to South Georgia voters, as well as the people in Metro Atlanta who already knew you. And, and I suspect that's true of Mike Thurman when he ran for labor commissioner as well. And I'll ask you about that, Mike. But Sam, just in, in respect to that, um, rural Georgia is evaporating in terms of population. Um, dozens of counties in South Georgia did not keep up with the 10% growth rate of the entire 10.6% growth rate over the last uh, 10 years. And uh, it means that more than a few Republican-held dif- districts in rural Georgia could evaporate. And frankly, the same thing happened 10 years ago and potentially 10 years before that. I mean, this isn't a brand new phenomena. Uh, the, the most promising news for rural Georgia uh, would be the new emphasis on broadband. Uh, because by definition, uh, it is really hard to get the quality businesses they want and to keep the young people they want to retain without broadband. That is, that is the number one issue. It's, you know, we, it's no longer the four-lane road. It's 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 broadband, which is the uh, modern-day water for economic growth. Uh, you're going to see uh, further uh, loss of influence in rural Georgia. Uh, but, you know, candidly, we need to understand that our country's in a phase where manufacturing jobs are returning. And we have a lot of land in Georgia. We have a lot of great sites to bring great businesses here. Uh, and broadband is really the number one thing that's necessary to, to bring those jobs. Um, so, Mike Thurman, if rural Georgia is declining dramatically in population, that should, on the surface of it, appeal, be a good thing for Democrats, presumably. Uh, but at the same time, the fastest growing state house and Senate districts uh, in Georgia are already held by Republicans, Cherokee County, Forsyth counties north of Atlanta, which really means that Republicans who are worried about what happens to Lucy McBath, who, about trying to get her out of office, um, or Carolyn Bordeaux in the 7th, they do have more voters up that way that they could try to carve out some districts with, don't they? Well, yes, but let me just push back a little, you know, have, having been born and raised in rural Georgia on a farm and a Democrat is not a good thing that rural Georgia is being depopulated and more importantly, that opportunities are becoming more limited. Uh, I just think that uh, visionary leaders, what we really have to do, and I think many ways, there'll be a tremendous amount, as it should be, of focus and media attention on the fact that Georgia is close to becoming a uh, minority, majority state, so forth and so on, and the various uh, increases among Hispanics and Asians. But that racial, race-based concept is somewhat obsolete from a political perspective. And even in reapportionment, you have to look beyond race. Back in the 20th century, that worked. Right now, it's about commonalities of interest. And people, and what we saw in the last presidential race is that What's more important than race is position and economics, because those things, philosophy, economics, uh, actually drive uh, voter attitude just as much or equally more than race. And so as we prepare for this uh, reapportionment session, I think it's important for leaders not just to look at race, because really, uh, Bill, it's a 20th century obsolete concept. Another fast-growing group of mixed-race Americans. And so, and so where is the political leaning there if you mix race? There's no way to know. 
And so we just have to really think about the future and see this as Sam, and I agree with him, as an opportunity. But unfortunately, the politics of the 20th century, there were people who woke up this morning and said, oh, my God, the world is coming to an end, and that's just a wrong-headed way to look at who we are and, more importantly, where we're going. Um, Bill, I, uh, in order to start to think about redistricting and what that was going to look like, especially for South Georgia, I uh, drove to Talbotton, Georgia, a couple of weeks ago. Um, it is a town, it's just one of those many, many small towns um, population less than a thousand now. Uh, Ten years ago, its population was about twelve hundred. Um, just to find out what what are they struggling with, what are their challenges. Um, it's about forty five minutes east of Columbus, but it just kind of feels like it's in the middle of nowhere. It's so far away from um, those big uh, kind of those big metro areas that they're attracting people. Um, and their biggest problem was that they had lost their piggly wiggly. They lost their Piggly Wiggly because their population was declining. Uh, Now their population is declining because there's nowhere to go to the grocery store. Um, And so these little towns start to get into kind of a death spiral. They get smaller. Uh, Now their uh, legislative delegation is likely to get smaller as well um, and have uh, less power, less number at the legislature. Um, And so it's, it's something that deeply concerns me because I really do think that small Georgia towns are a really important part of the fabric of the state. Um, But I also talked to Calvin Smyrie about it, who is a legislator down, of course, in Columbus. And he pointed out that, especially in the Georgia legislature right now, um, numbers are not the same thing as exactly influence right now. Um, The most powerful legislators are from Blue Ridge and Vidalia. And a lot of this still has to do with seniority and party and power. Um, So as we see the redistricting changes, um, they may not be as immediate effect in terms of the actual agenda and legislation in the chamber um, as it seems like it might be. Uh, but Patricia, uh, I mean, we, we'll, we have yet to see what these maps that are going to present are going to look like. But the shift in population does suggest that rural Georgia may still have some very influential leaders in the House and Senate, but they're, 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 going, to lose, they're going to lose some districts in South Georgia, yes, that are going to have fewer representatives down there. They absolutely will. And that will have a huge effect just on their, just their simple numbers in the chamber. And most of those are Republicans right now. Sam, what, I, I, we can talk a little bit about what we think might happen with redistricting, but, but if, what I'd like to start with in terms of that is talking about the 2022 election cycle. Um, what, what are the, these numbers in terms of the dramatic increase in the Hispanic, Asian American, uh, and, and African American populations of the state? I'm, I'm interested in, from, from your point of view as a Republican, you've watched and have been very candid in, in criti- being critical of the way in which the Republican Party has you know, followed Donald Trump down a path towards really being a, a dominantly white party appealing to white voters. What cautions do Republicans need to take from uh, the, the data that they're getting right now here in the state? So... Um Our governor's probably been doing a much, much better job in that area than practically all of the other statewide Republican leadership. When you look at his appointees to boards, to uh, Mm -hmm. district attorney positions, judges, um, he has been far more open and far more aggressive in reaching out to the minority community. So the governor's been doing it very well. The problem is the former president and his leadership uh, in that regard. Uh, I think in many ways, the politicians, the Republican politicians in the state of Georgia are in much better shape to have those discussions locally than our national leaders are uh, in that regard. Um, So I think that we will continue to see the governor reach out to the minority community and seek to broaden the tent. My my problem, Bill, as you so stated, is from a national perspective, uh, the effort is abysmal. 
and in fact counterproductive. Uh, so you you accurately described my angst and concern with the National Party, and I think that uh, they're not going to wake up potentially until it's too late. Yeah. Um. You know, Mike, I, let me pick up on that um, in terms of the national uh, conservative movement. Uh, when we look at this data and this notion that one of you expressed in terms of some people seeing this as a reason for stoking up fear among uh, white people in the country. You know, Tucker Carlson's the guy who on Fox News has for months and months uh, come stoke racist fears by talking about White replacement, warning his viewers that it's a democratic electoral strategy. This white replacement theory comes right out of white supremacist uh, doctrine. And um, it is, in fact, you can imagine it's going to uh, go to work again now that this census data is out, which shows that nationally uh, there are the, the percentage of white people in the population has drawn has dropped more dramatically than people expected. It was basically fifty eight percent. No, I'm sorry. It was like sixty one percent. I think it's dropped to like fifty eight uh, percent. So we're going to see the fear stoked again, Michael. Well, absolutely, but it's going to fail ultimately, as it always does, and it always will, and and we'll see it play out here in Georgia. One of the things, and I I can't advise my Republican friends, but I, and I applaud the governor for his appointments and DA and, and the Supreme Court. But then when you support Senate Bill 202, as most Republicans did almost unanimously, uh, when you refuse to expand uh, Medicaid, that negates or at least dilutes any significance that or any gain that you may have had. But I also want to point to a Republican governor that I really, uh, Governor Nathan Deal actually had a great rapport uh, with the African-American community. He was very honest and sincere. But what the census tell me uh, that if you embrace that philosophy of all white party, that you have no you're losing. You're losing because the numbers, whether you have a right heart, whether you're motivated uh, by your morals or trying to do the right thing, just from a raw power political game perspective. Uh, that type of philosophy will not negate in success going forward. That's what the November election showed us. President Biden won, two senators won, and that process will continue unless we step back from race and begin to look at interests, communities, and what can benefit a much broader swath of our citizens. Yeah, Bill, I spoke with a um, Republican strategist, pollster, uh, the day after the 2020 election, or the day after we knew what had happened with the 2020 election, and said, what do you, what do you think? Did you see this coming? He's like, I have seen this coming for 20 years. And he was talking about uh, the really direct connection between the success of the Republican Party and the results for the Republican Party, especially statewide, that tracks almost directly with minority participation in the electorate. And as the state was becoming more and more diverse, the margins for Republicans were shrinking just a bit over time. They were still winning, but their margins were smaller and that tracked with the increased diversity. So when they look at numbers where diversity goes up, their share of the population, their share of the electorate goes down. And so there is anxiety today among Republicans. And I do think that um, after the way the debate on SB 202 unfolded, I really agree with Mr. Thurmond. Um, that was incredibly damaging between uh, to the relationship between the Republicans who have been trying to reach out to minorities and the minorities on the other end of that who saw the party in the state pushing through this bill that began to be a conversation solely about race and solely about are you trying to keep black and brown voters away from the polls in order to continue your your dominance in this state. And so I think that has had a wildly damaging effect, um, even among the legislators themselves, and who uh, I think uh, black legislators felt just deeply wounded by the way that debate went, um, and white legislators did too. And so I think uh, that debate was really the last thing you would want as a statewide party going into a statewide election 
when you see the diversity increasing the way it is. Brilliant analysis, uh, Olin, Patricia. So- I'm sorry, Bill, but that was a brilliant analysis. I mean, that was so <laughs> Thanks. damaging. I- I'm just saying it was yeah. so damaging, and yeah. not just from a political perspective, but it just put Georgia in a very, very difficult place that's going to take a long time to unravel to get us back to where we were. Sam Ola, not to put too fine a point on this, uh, and I know you can weigh in in any way you want to, but if we put it back in a national perspective, back in 2012, you were an early supporter of Senator of uh, Governor Mitt Romney. You felt he was the best candidate for president of the United States. After Romney lost that election, as you well know, this, the National Republican Party, the RNC, decided they needed to do an audit to get um, their act together in terms of how they were reaching out to diverse populations. And we all know that that collapsed. And in 2016, it all turned to Donald Trump. Sam? So we need to have a little bit of a discussion about the National Democratic Party, because while Mike and Patricia have referenced some weaknesses in the Georgia Republican Party, Let's talk about the Achilles heel for the Democratic Party. Uh, This schism between moderates and progressives is not going away. Today's news on nine moderates in Congress that uh, support the infrastructure bill coming up for a vote now and aren't excited about a three and a half trillion dollar, let's throw everything in the pot together. Uh, mentality is going to be an issue in state and national elections next year. Uh, You had uh, the presumed successor to Nancy Pelosi last week say that if the moderates didn't take charge of the discussion in D.C., the Republicans would win the House next year. So I, I agree with Mike and Patricia that the Georgia Republican Party has work to do especially with regard to broadening the tent. I also agree that the other political party, uh, more so nationally than locally, uh, has an Achilles heel. Um, Thank you for pointing that out. We should mention, by the way, that one of those moderates on the House side is uh, uh, 7th District Congresswoman Carolyn Bordeaux, who has all along uh, been very skeptical about this enormous, enormous three-plus trillion dollar package that progressive Democrats and the president have been pushing. Uh, She sees it as, and it's interesting, Michael Thurman, that coming from her district, um, which, depending on how the lines are drawn, could put some uh, conservatives in there who aren't going to be very supportive of support for that package, uh, she understands she'd better be careful about an issue like that, uh, Mr. Thurman. Well, I think this is who she is, actually. It's not just a political position. She's always been a moderate. And if you really think about it, uh, Joe Biden moderates are really carrying the day. The success of the infrastructure, uh, 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 bipartisan uh, legislation that was passed by the Senate, uh, the fact that Joe Biden went to Washington saying that he was going to turn down the uh, political, the toxic uh, divisiveness between political parties, I believe it's beginning to take hold in America, Republicans and Democrats. We're in the midst of an unprecedented, uh, 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 once in a century crisis. And what Americans really want now is solutions to some of our problems. And if you look at recent elections on the national scene, moderate Democrats have carried the day in five straight elections from New York to Ohio to Louisiana and Virginia. So that tells me what Democrats and I think smart Republicans are coming to understand is that this back and forth doesn't necessarily solve problems. And right now we have growing infection rates. People are sick and dying. That's not a Republican or a Democratic issue. It's, all right, who's going to solve that problem? Who has the vision and the, and the uh, ability to solve problems? And I think that's where the moderate Democrats in the Joe, model, Joe Biden model that's where we are right now. We recognize that there are people on the left and the right within the party, but at the end of the day, things get done in the middle. It always has and it always will get done in the yeah, middle. Yeah, but P- 
Patricia, I've got to get to a break, but before we do, it's understandable what Mike Thurman is pointing out, that moderates, he hopes, will uh, end up ruling the day. But there's no question that what Sam Olins points out, the split between moderates and liberal Democrats in Washington, uh, is potentially dangerous for Democrats going into next year's election, Patricia. Yeah, it's the challenge of any majority party is that as your numbers get larger, you're going to ha- you will have drawn that from different factions that will inevitably be at opposite ends of their own party's spectrum. Um, I agree with uh, Sam uh, about the schism. I think the more worrisome schism for Democrats um, is really going to come down to social issues. And there are um, some very, very progressive Democrats who have have pushed things like defunding the police, which a majority of Democrats did not favor. But there are um, loud, concerned um, progressives who feel very strongly on a number of these issues. And I think those are the issues, those really hot button um, emotional uh, issues uh, that are really that could pose some danger and probably will pose certainly danger to Democrats in, in coming forward. Okay, I've got to get to the first break of Political Rewind. I'll do that and we'll be back with more in just a moment. Michael Thurman, Sam Olins, Patricia Murphy with us today for Political Rewind. I'd, I'd like to change a subject. Well, in the weeks ahead, I mean, that we don't expect this special session of the legislature. Patricia, still looking at October maybe uh, before they have the call. They've got a lot of data they're going to need to crunch. They've got to get schedules aligned. So even though this came out a little sooner than many people expected, it's going to be a couple months before they go into session, isn't it? Uh, yes, I actually asked the speaker, when is the frost on the pumpkin? Because that's when he said uh, he thought uh, the session was going to be I'm like, so if you did not grow up on a farm, when does your pumpkin get frosty? <laughs> and he said early November, you know, he said it could be sooner, but right around Halloween. So that's the most specific he could get, uh, just like the weather. I I have to say, with a little pride, I love the fact that what Speaker Ralston said on our show has become a ubiquitous kind of measurement of when the session will take place. Thanks for that, Patricia. I want to talk about the uh, uh, coronavirus for a few minutes here. Um, we know the Delta variant is really ripping through states across the South, particularly because of the large percentages of unvaccinated individuals. But uh, let's look at Georgia. Um, The latest Georgia Department of Public Health report shows that we have had uh, 4,995 confirmed cases since the last report day before yesterday. 32 people now reported have died since that last report. There are hospitalizations that are soaring in many parts of the state. And if you look at a map of the state of Georgia and the color coding, it's really staggering to see, particularly southwest Georgia is bright, is dark red, bright red, um, everything all the way down to the Florida line and up past um, uh, Savannah, up toward Augusta. And then there's a little corner down in the very bottom of the southwest corner that we're having real problems. Patricia, um, the question becomes, what does the state do? What do state officials do to ramp up their messaging about how important it is for people to wear masks, to get vaccinated? Um, Republicans are being critical of Biden saying, and even some of the people in his own party are being critical saying he has not used the bully pulpit enough to insist on vaccinations, on mask wearing. I think we could make the same, uh, raise the same question about what's happening with state officials in this state. Sure. Well, you asked what state officials could do to ramp up their messaging. There is a lot that they could do to ramp up their messaging. And we actually led the jolt yesterday um, paging Dr. Toomey, uh, Dr. <laughs> Kathleen Toomey, who we who has been very absent, frankly, from the public face of this. Her staff said that she has been working the phones, doing the things public health directors do, uh, checking on hospitals, monitoring um, the situation, uh, doing outreach. Um, but in terms of the public face of it, 
there just hasn't been one. And so um, every morning when I write the jolt, I read the newspapers around the state. And this week, I just was sh just shocked to see how quickly the situation has deteriorated in every single corner of the state, Southwest uh, Georgia, Chatham County, Northwest Georgia, Athens, Gainesville, all, every hospital is full to capacity. All, all ICUs are struggling. Um, and it's as if it happened overnight, but without sort of the really the governance that you would expect and the leadership you would expect to alert people to just how dangerous the situation is. Um, now, the governor's technical powers have been greatly limited by the legislature, and that happened in the most recent legislative session. He can't just send out an order and close churches. That's, that's literally no longer legal for him. Um, we're no longer in a statewide emergency. So there are limits to what he can do right now, but there is no limit to the amount that he and Dr. Toomey could be getting out and really raising the alarm on the situation. Um, Mike Thurman, what's the situation right now in DeKalb County in terms of positive uh, returns, in terms of cases, in terms of hospitalizations? Help us understand your uh, county. Well, for the first time during this 18-month uh, pandemic, uh, I was sharing with my wife, I just I'm consumed by a sense of foreboding. Uh, it's what Patricia just mentioned. There's this tidal wave of infections, and it's it's coming up from Florida and west from Arkansas and Mississippi, and it's going to converge here in Georgia uh, within the next 10 days to 14 days. And uh, we are doing everything we can. You know, it doesn't matter what the state people are doing. Uh, I'm elected to do what I can to try to protect the health and safety and welfare of the people of DeKalb County. Well, we are aggressively getting the message out. We have a, a vaccination event this weekend, and I'm going to promote it $100 to get a vaccination. Uh, we've seen some success with that in terms of the unvaccinated population that we have. We have about 44, 45% of the Cap County residents are fully vaccinated, uh, 35, 36% of Hispanics and Latinos. So we have work to do, but this is very, very serious. It's a crisis that is growing and growing, and we should be doing everything we can to try to get as many people as possible to wear masks and wash hands, but more importantly, to get vaccinated. That's ultimately the best strategy that we can employ. Sam Olins, we're seeing data now um, from the New York Times and then from the Georgia Department of Public Health website about uh, the difference between what happens when people are vaccinated and unvaccinated. The Times broke it down by state. Um, and here's one of the things they looked at. Hospitalization rate per 100,000 people. In Georgia, that is literally five people who are hospitalized per 100,000, whereas unvaccinated people, it's 735 per 100,000 people. Death rates per 100,000 people, it's one person for uh, every 100,000. For unvaccinated people, it's 99 people. So we're, there's the debate over whether vaccines work or not really should be over, shouldn't it? Yes. I share in your frustration uh, that we uh, are in a period where people use words like liberty and freedom to endanger members of their family and friends with a potentially fatal illness that isn't, um, um, in fact, nearly so dangerous if you've had the vaccine. Uh, it, it's mind-boggling to me that we have individuals that are highly educated that continue to spread such misinformation and disinformation uh, instead of, frankly, doing for their fellow human being what is necessary. Uh, this is not a partisan issue. It should not, well, let me rephrase that. It should not be a partisan issue. It's absurd that anyone permits it to be a partisan issue. Uh, and for individuals to uh, still tout that uh, these vaccines are not effective or they're dangerous 
or any other nonsense is just unspeakable. Um, We as a nation should demand that our fellow human being get the jab. Uh, And anyone who wants to have a little discussion with me about liberty and freedom uh, to discuss uh, what happens to their family members or friends that die as a result of their incompetence. You know, Patricia, uh, we had an example of uh, perhaps unintentional misinformation on our show the other day. One of our panelists, uh, who, by the way, believes people ought to get vaccinated, uh, made the comment that how can you expect people to unanimously agree that there should be vaccinations when they should have vaccinations when some 60 percent of the CDC workers aren't vaccinated? And we had to do a really quick fact check live while the show was on the air because we'd never heard that figure. And it turns out that's been a very popular meme in some uh, circles, social media circles. It turns out that CDC, what what had really been said was they uh, only could report accurately that they knew uh, how many people had so far been vaccinated, but it didn't have anything to do with whether others had been vaccinated as well. So that kind of misinformation continues to flourish, Patricia. Yeah, and that's somebody who um, I I don't know who it was, um, but I'm glad you'll fact. Yeah, I don't want to. I'm yeah. not trying to call somebody out. Is my point? Oh, oh no, not at all. Um, but I'm I'm going to say uh, that sounds like it was perhaps unintentional. Read something that wasn't true. Sometimes the things that are too wild to be true are totally false. Um, but there are leaders in this state. There are members of Congress from Georgia who are deliberately spreading false information and information. Um, we just lost uh, Patricia's audio. Will Sam Burmistaz will try to get it back and we'll uh, keep going. Um, uh, Michael, you've got um, uh, legislators running for office. Uh, Bert Jones is an example who are uh, proposing various measures that would limit uh, what a private business could do in terms of insisting that their employees uh, get vaccinated. And as Sam Olins uh, points out, you get a little bit tired of hearing the individual liberty argument when it comes to public health, Michael. Yes, and I want to connect this back to our uh, original discussion today in terms of the changing demographics of Georgia. One of the things that's taught in any uh, first-year journalism class that is is the message, but also the messenger. Think about it. Georgia is now roughly 50-50. And if you think on the state level, the people who've been encouraging vaccinations and wearing a mask, it's not very diverse. So if I could offer some information, uh, some suggestions, and I'm sure – that Dr. Toomey is doing everything she can and the people at public health. But if you're trying to communicate to a population that's diverse, it might help to have diverse messengers who actually look or speak or have some relationship with the people you're trying to communicate with. It's just communication one-on-one. Georgia is different. The Georgia I grew up in, and Bill, I'm thinking about reapportionment when I was the chairman of the Black Caucus in 1991, uh, doing reapportionment, all we had to worry about was black folk and white folk. The world has changed dramatically since 1991, and that is a positive thing, but we have to have the leaders who can embrace uh, this new reality. And some of us are just slow to change, and that is the challenge, even with fighting COVID-19. All right. Um, Michael Thurman, you get the last word on, from uh, this segment of the show. We're going to have to take our final break. We'll come back with more with our panel in a moment. Sam Olins, um, what do you think it means that 19 Republicans joined Democrats in Washington this week on the Hill in a uh, pushing the $1.2 trillion infrastructure package through the U.S. Senate. Uh, is, does it mean there's hope for some bipartisanship in, 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 in Washington? I, I, was, it, it, I mean, or was this a matter of self-interest dominating? No, I think there's hope for bipartisanship. I think the problem 
is um, people are reading those tea leaves improperly. Uh, I saw a quote from Nancy Pelosi yesterday where she expects the Republicans at the end of the day to support the um, uh, the three issue billion, of the, the debt ceiling. Uh, ah, the debt ah, ceiling. Okay. Uh, there is no way the uh, Senate Republicans are going to support the increase in the debt ceiling when it's based on the three and a half plus trillion dollar spending plan. And as serious as an issue of uh, the debt ceiling is, the three and a half trillion dollar extravaganza is similar in scope. So I, I don't think the Republican Party and the Democratic Party understand potentially how bad the schism is when it comes to spending. Uh, I thought it was tremendously important that Mitch McConnell early on supported the uh, bipartisan infrastructure bill. I mean, let's face it, it's due to him that there were 19 rather than, say, five or 10 uh, Republicans that joined. But uh, I, I think folks are reading the cards wrong when they think that the Republicans are going to uh, provide votes on these other issues, because I just don't see that happening. Of course, we also want to point out that under Donald Trump, his tax bill and other uh, measures, the debt uh, expanded dramatically. Joe Biden is continuing in that direction right now. And it is, I know there are a lot of people, Sam, who are troubled by the fact that one of the things the Republicans are looking at doing in terms of getting this three-plus trillion dollar package uh, through uh, without any Republican votes is delaying any kind of effort to have to raise the debt ceiling to get there. It's a, it's a maneuver that's uh, somewhat tricky and manipulative. And as you say, it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out in campaigns next year, Sam. So clearly, don't look for me to be one who defends President Trump and the uh, effect of that tax bill. Uh, you know, I, I still find it amazing that the two parties can't put together a bill that includes a minimum tax. Uh, you know, whatever other adjectives or adverbs you want to use, it ought to be agreed upon that every individual and business pays a minimum percentage of tax uh, and that that would bring a lot of money into the federal treasury. So clearly under the prior president unrelated to COVID at the end of his administration, they spent like drunk sailors, but two wrongs don't make a right. I mean, three and a half trillion is a number that's never been considered before. Uh, and it's just yeah. totally uh, inappropriate. Patricia, let's look at that from the other side. Um, it's interesting that we had Republicans here in Georgia who are running for uh, other offices. Jody Heiss, U.S. Rep Representative Jody Heiss, uh, who's now running for Secretary of State. He was one of the Republicans who said, quote, how in the world did that $1.2 trillion bill pass in the Senate? 69 to 32 words, rhino Republicans. It's fascinating, Patricia, because we're used to praising members of Congress uh, in our state when they bring the bacon home for important projects like, oh, roads, bridges, broadband, and other things, Patricia. Yes. Well, I have two words for the bill, and it's I-14. Um, that is the cross-state <laughs> interstate that is in that bill to connect Albany to Columbus and then on to Texas. That would be such a game changer for those small towns that we talked about in South Georgia um, and bring a, uh, a lot of commerce through there um, and also make those areas then um, ripe for things like um, manufacturing development because it's so important for those manufacturers to be on a large artery. Um, and so um, I think that the there was talk before this bill passed that it would all be uh, lumped into one, that it would be the social services bill and the roads and bridges bill, and the Democrats were just going to jam it on through. I think it was really smart of Biden to split it up and do the thing. And this is what bipartisanship is. Do the thing that everybody wants. It's not asking people to support you. It's doing something they would support. And so even though Donald Trump messaged against this bill and called all 19 of those Republicans rhinos, 
they did not care because it has so much in there for their states. Um, now they're not going to go out and campaign against Trump in their own campaigns, but it was really relevant to me to see that those senators were willing to go against yeah. Trump if it meant bringing that back for their states. Michael Thurman is a Democrat. How do you feel uh, about your, your candidates in 2022 who are going to be uh, having to uh, deal with this three-plus trillion-dollar package that will be passed if it is by reconciliation with no Republican votes? Is that going to be a, a, a problem for Georgia Republicans, uh, Georgia Democrats? I don't believe the three-and-a-half trillion-dollar uh, package has any chance. Uh, passage. Uh, I don't. I think uh, at the end of the day, it will be if it passes. It's going to be significantly reduced. Uh, Joe Manchin has made sure of that, and two of the other moderate Democratic senators. But it does give, I think, Speaker Pelosi and some of the progressive members of the caucus in the House at least uh, uh, some respect or at least for their position but i don't think that uh president biden or or even chuck schumer believe that that in fact will be the final number if it passes at all but i think what this has shown also is that joe biden understands uh the process of the u.s congress uh he knows how to use the levels of power and for him to achieve these two things uh, with the support of Republicans, and I, I applaud, and this is new, this will make news, I applaud Mitch McConnell uh, stepping forward and supporting the infrastructure bill. <laughs> it was an inflection point, a major moment. And look, this may be the first time, at least in the last five years, Bill, where anyone has uh, challenged Donald Trump and Leah to talk about it. So that, I think, suggests that maybe Trump's influence is beginning to wane uh, over the Republican Party as we move into 2022. All right. In these days of partisan toxicity, it is really nice. We're going to end the show <laughs> on a note of bipartisan harmony over the infrastructure bill. Thanks to the comments that you made, Michael Thurman, and you as well, Sam Olin. So Sam, uh, Michael Thurman, Patricia Murphy, thank you so much for being with me uh, for today's show. I really enjoyed our conversation. Uh, by the way, if you did not uh, get a chance to be with us yesterday, I would really encourage you to listen to the podcast or find it on our website. We had Dr. David Satcher on, Mark Rosenberg, Catherine Lawler, talking about public health approaches to gun violence. It was really a fascinating show. It's worth your while. We're completely out of time. Take care, stay healthy, wear your mask, get vaccinated. See you all on Monday.